Father, you have invited us to come boldly before the throne of grace, that we might find grace to help in time of need. And so we do that in obedience to you, uh, not on our merit, but upon the merit of Jesus Christ, who has become our Savior and King. And Lord, we invite you to be present here now throughout this hour, to touch our lives according to our individual needs, to focus our thoughts on the Word and upon what you would say to us from these passages of Scripture. Your Word is truth. It is by your Word that we come to know you. It is by your word that we have cleansing and instruction. Your word is a lamp unto our path. And Lord, I ask that you will be the teacher this morning of your word through your spirit, that you will accomplish what you would choose to do in each of our lives, and that we will be clay in the potter's hand, moldable into the image of Christ. And Father, throughout our Sunday school this morning, in every class, from the two-year-olds all the way up to the 102-year-olds, Lord, that you will be ministering in each life and in the service concurrently. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You'll turn to the 21st chapter of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21. I'd like to begin this morning by reading the first three verses of Numbers chapter 21. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. You may remember from last week that the Israelites had asked permission uh, from the king of Edom if they could pass through the country of Edom on their way up onto the plateau east of the Jordan River. And the king of Edom had refused that permission and instead had rallied his troops and they had come down to their border and they had demonstrated against Israel. And Israel made no move to, to penetrate Edom, not only because there was a military force in front of them, which wasn't the primary problem, but because God said, you will not attack Edom. Moses, therefore, decided to lead the people to the south. Now, again, if you can picture this area in your mind, you know, Israel is on the eastern end of the Mediterranean, and at the southern end of that corner down there is Egypt. And we're dealing with the area between Egypt and Israel, or Canaan, as it was then. And they are immediately south of what we would today call the basic land of Israel, in the, in the Negev and down in the wilderness of Zin. And so they have decided to turn south. Now, if you turn south from this particular area, you're headed towards the Red Sea. Now, as I've mentioned before, and, and certainly you note from your own maps that the Red Sea can be looked at as a long, narrow body with two horns at the top. And those are narrow bodies of water. They are gulfs. One of them goes over into Egypt. It's called the Gulf of Suez. And the other goes up towards the Dead Sea. and It's called the Gulf of Aqba. And so when they turn south from Canaan and head away, they're actually headed for the head of the Gulf of Aqba. And so they're headed in that particular direction. And the idea was they're going to come down around the southern end. They won't go clear to the water, probably. They'll come around the southern end of Edom and then come up on, uh, 
visualize it from your direction, come up on the east side of Edom. So they're going further to the east to get around the land of Edom and to not penetrate this area. It is a circuitous route. But the interesting factor which is mentioned in this passage is before they actually even begin that journey, the king of Arad gets it into his mind that he will pick a fight with Israel. Now, Arad, <laughs> every time I mention the name Arad, uh, Dr. Walmark and, and, and I get this uh, humorous uh, sense in our minds because Arad is a desolate place. I mean, it's out in the middle of nowhere. And in the wintertime, it is bitterly cold there. We spent a night there and we about froze fully dressed inside a dorm room under the covers and we were still frozen. And a fire in a fireplace. I mean, that's one cold place. Anyway, it, it doesn't seem like a place anybody would want to live, but I, I'm sure that three quarters of the year it's probably fine. But anyway, the king of Arad had witnessed Israel coming to Kadesh and then passing from Kadesh 15 miles to the north at, uh, east to Mount Hor, which is where we saw at the end of class last week where Moses was laid to rest. He was taken to the top of the mountain, there by uh, where, where Aaron was laid to rest. He was taken to the top of the mountain by Moses, and his royal priestly robes were taken off of him and placed on Aaron's son, Eliezer. And before all of Israel, he was commissioned as the new high priest. And then Aaron simply laid down and gave up the ghost because it was his time and Moses buried them, him there on the top of Mount Hor. He was 123 years of age at the time. They passed to Mount Hor. Now Mount Hor is in the direction of Arad from Kadesh. So the king of Arad assumed, you know, he got out his little computer and projected the course here, and if they continued, they would come right towards Arad. And so what he decides to do is take his army down there and attack Israel to prevent them from coming up against his city. Now in this passage of scripture, we read in the first verse that he heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim. Now the word Atharim is the Hebrew word for spies, the way of the spies. In other words, Israel was coming by the route by which the 12 spies had been sent 38 years before from Kadesh into the land of Canaan. And so that became known in, in Hebrew history as the way of the Atharim. And it's basically the principal ridge route that one would travel if one was going from Kadesh Barnea to Beersheba to Arad to Hebron and on up into the middle of the land. And so you can understand why the king of Arad felt like he was in that line of march. It was also, however, the route by which Israel had attempted an invasion before. Again, going back to that event 38 years earlier, where they, they had come to Kadesh Barnea, they had sent the, the spies in the land, the spies had come back, and Israel had rebelled against God and said, we're not going into the land. And God said, fine, you're not going into the land. You're going to wander for 40 years in this wilderness. And then they said, oops, <laughs> that was a boo-boo. We're going into the land, Lord. And they tried to do it on their own. Moses said, you're not going in. I'm not going with you. The ark's not going with you. You do that against the will of God and you'll be destroyed. And that's exactly what they did. They marched right up that same way towards Arad, the way of the Atharim. And the Canaanites came down and wiped them out. Well, you could understand the thinking of the king of Arad. 38 years before, these guys had come. 
We'd wiped them out. We'd gotten all the goodies from the people we'd killed. Uh, they're here again. They're a threat to us. Let's do it again. Now, he may not be the same king, but it doesn't really matter. They all kept histories, and they understood and knew what had happened before. And uh, so they viewed this as another uh, kind of a deja vu situation, I suppose. It seemed like an easy victory for the Canaanites. And so they attacked Israel, and you'll notice in the passage it says, and took some of them captive. Now, as we walk the Christian life, it isn't one series of victories, is it? Along the way, a few captives get taken. It seems like sometimes we suffer reverses, and sometimes it's our own fault because we're off on some rabbit trail and not following the way of the Lord. They are now following the way of the Lord, a bit begrudgingly, as we're going to notice in a minute here, but some captives were taken. Interesting that God allowed this to happen. But what happens next? They go to God and they say to the Lord, if you will give us the victory, we will wipe them out. And what have they done this time? They have gone to God first. And they have said, Lord, this is what we perceive. This is what we want to do. Is this what we should do? And will your blessing be upon us? That's not at all what they did the time before. They decide they're going to go in anyway, in spite of what God had commanded. And God said, go, and I will give you the victory. And so they attacked these Canaanites, the city of Arad, and the neighboring cities that had joined with the king of Arad. And they destroyed them, wiped them out, kaput. It was a different story for the Canaanites this time than it had been before. Now, we're told in that uh, third verse that the place was called Horma, which means destruction, the place of destruction. And you can go there today to the site of Arad, and you'll see that there have been archaeological efforts in rebuilding parts of the city of Arad. This is the old Canaanite Arad, the city that was destroyed by the Jews, by, by the Hebrews here. And this, of course, was the, the first of the destructions to occur in Canaan. And it should have been kind of a forewarning to other Canaanites. The Israelites are coming, and this time God is with them. But it won't happen immediately because they've got to go down around Edom, and, and several months will pass as they make this journey. Let's read on from verse 4. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. You know, it's bad enough when you have an enemy on the outside. But when the enemy rises up from within, that's very discouraging. And this happens so often to Israel. Verse 5, And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? You know, they could have recorded this and, and just played it periodically. For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this miserable food. What's that? Manna. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, because we have spoken against the Lord in you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. 
And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. We have here a record of one of the more important events in the history of Israel, particularly relative to the time of the Exodus. From Mount Hor, they marched southeastward, down towards the Gulf of Aqaba. The plan, as I said, and as the passage teaches us, was to circumvent Edom, not to penetrate the borders of Edom, because God said, this is not the time to, to fight Edom, but to go around Edom. Now, to many, this meant we're turning our backs. We have just defeated the king of Arad. We've defeated the Canaanites up here in the northern Negev. Now we're turning around and we're marching away from them. What kind of sense does that make? Many felt that they should continue. I mean, we've opened the door. We've broken through the first line of defense. Let's continue to penetrate the land. Why stop here? Seems at this moment that at least three things were troubling Israel. First was this seeming failure to capitalize on an amazing victory that they have won here against the king of Arad and to launch an immediate invasion of the land from that logical point. I mean, unless you understand the geography of the land, you, you don't understand how logical this is. I mean, you're already on the way up. You're, you've already opened the, the, the main blockage uh, into the land. You're, you're on your way now. You just continue up the ridge to Hebron and then straight down the ridge of the central portion of Canaan, taking out city after city. It made very good sense to those who were probably militaristically minded, of which there probably weren't very many in Israel at that time. I think, though, a second thing was troubling Israel, and that is disgust with Edom, that they were going to have to go around Edom rather than just go right through Edom because it was a much shorter route. If they could have followed what was called the King's Highway, which would have taken them right through Edom and up through Moab and, and into the Gilead region, I mean, they would have saved scores of miles of marching rather than marching to the south and east. And after all, the Edomites were their cousins. They should be welcomed by their cousins. I mean, 500 years before, Jacob and Esau had, as it were, buried the hatchet. They, they had taken care of their animosities, supposedly, and, and they th were, should be friends, right? Well, the Edomites were not acting in a very friendly manner, and this caused many of the Israelites to be very disturbed. And then I think, thirdly, they were impatient. They're imp impatient with, the, with this process of getting into the land. We want to settle down. We want to sit under our own vine. <laughs> we want to raise our kids in a safe land. When are we going to get about it? It's taking too long. We've been out in this wilderness now for 39 years. Now, we have to think about the fact that these three major factors were exacerbated by the fact that it was hot. You know? If you're hot and irritable, do you think as logically? Probably not. Uh, they were aggravated by the heat of the desert, by the fact they kept running out of water, and the f all they had was manna, and the bleakness of the area. I mean, you know, it wasn't like looking at beautiful snow-capped mountains and forests. I mean, you're walking around through the desert. I'm sure they got tired of bleached rocks everywhere and nothing but sand and uh, Hamada, you know, rock-covered, barren places. Now, what is interesting is, how many times had they already witnessed rebellion against God and the result of that rebellion? 
Yet in spite of what they had witnessed on behalf of their elders and their own folly, they grumble against God and Moses yet again. They dared to gripe and, uh, as I mentioned, it's like a broken record. They can't think of nothing, they can't think of anything new to complain about. Complain about the same things, you know. Why'd you bring us out of Egypt into this miserable wilderness where there's no food except this man and we're tired of that and there's no water and it's hot and you know it's desolate and we don't like it here. Well there's something different that happens in this passage. God doesn't all of a sudden come you know in a cloud or show up in the tabernacle and Moses doesn't fall on his face before God in immediate intercession. Instead God zaps them immediately. No evidence that he came first to to uh, you know, show the Shekinah glory or anything. He just hits them with immediate judgment. I don't think it's because God be, ran out of patience. Because God can't run out of patience. Do you know why? Because he's perfect in everything. Uh, God's patience is eternal. God's patience is unlimited. God does not run out of patience. God does not do things because all of a sudden he's pulling his hair out. God does everything because he has chosen and made the decision to do this because of what is right and what is good. He knew that the time for invasion of the land was upon them. Therefore, there was no more time to play games. And so they needed serious and immediate discipline, and so he launched it with no further ado. Now they are in or near the Arabah. The Arabah is that uh, downfaulted valley that runs from the Dead Sea down to the Red Sea or the head of the Gulf of Aqaba. It's a relatively desolate place. And it is known for its vipers. But there probably weren't enough vipers in any one spot to do the job, so God apparently miraculously multiplied them and sent them into the Israelite camp virtually overnight. I mean, all of a sudden there was a plague of these things moving into the camp. These were deadly serpents. I mean, we're not talking about garden snakes here. We're talking about deadly vipers. And the Hebrew word here for them is burning ones. And that's where we get the translation fiery serpents. It's not that they were moving into camp and they were blazing or smoking or something. It's that when they bit, there was this burning fiery sensation that went from the venom as it spread through the body of the victim. Verse 7 here is a key verse to this whole passage. So the people came to Moses and said, The light has come on. We have sinned. Because we have spoken against the Lord in you, intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. This is a truth that the Scripture teaches over and over and over again. It is one of the most important truths in all of Scripture that confession of sin and repentance are absolutely indispensable to salvation and restoration. It cannot happen any other way. There is nothing we can do to receive God's salvation and blessing short of confession of sin and repentance. And that is a hard, hard thing for proud humans to do. You know, most of us, especially if we're male, hate to admit we're wrong. And we don't even want to admit it to God. We have sinned, or I have sinned, are three of the most important words that can ever be uttered by the human mouth. We must remember them well. 
There is a passage we off, so often refer to in 1 John, first chapter, the ninth verse. And it is only as we, what? Confess our sin that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Without that confession of sin, the rest does not follow. We must confess our sin. And that doesn't just mean that first time when we come to Christ as, as, as sinners to be cleansed and to be saved, as it were, but it means daily throughout our walk because we're constantly failing and we need to confess our sin daily. Notice that the Israelites here do not make any excuses. <laughs> they don't say, but, 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 Lord, it's hot, but, but, Lord, you know, we, we just got tired of manna. Um, we really want to go back to Egypt. It's not really our fault. Uh, you know, they make no excuses. They simply come straight to Moses and they immediately acknowledge their sin and they name it. We have spoken against you and God. They don't just come up and say some generic thing. I think we've goofed. We can tell because people are dying. We must have, you know. No. They know they have sinned. And, and therefore they come before Moses as the spokesman of God, God's prophet, and they confess their sin, and they ask Moses to intercede for them. And do you know what? Not only does Moses do it, I think he does it with a light heart. Light heart in the sense that these people see the light. I don't mean lighthearted as, you know, as it's a joke. But instead of heaviness, which has been over him so much when he goes before God, he says, oh, these people, Lord, would you please forgive? They've asked him to do it. And so he does it, I think, with great joy. But I think we have to also notice something else here. God responds differently from many of the times that he responded before. Rather than immediately removing the vipers, he gave them an antidote. He doesn't take away the vipers. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 8, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. Now, just think of the little practical matters here. How long does it take? from the time God says to Moses to make a fiery serpent, to design it, to have somebody build it, and to actually erect it. I mean, this doesn't happen in five minutes. They have to melt down some copper. <laughs> you know, they have to form it into a snake. They have to put it on this, this, this branch, stick, whatever it was they put it on, and, and elevate it. I mean, that takes time. And what's happening while that's going on? People are dying. People are dying. What is wonderful about this story is that it is a perfect picture of the situation of the whole human race. We have all been bitten and we're all dying without Christ. And when one confesses his sin and turns to God, does God immediately take away the vipers? No. Evil and temptation remain. You may have noticed. Even today, you may have faced some temptation to sin. And you know that we face it every day. Temptation to sin. Temptation to do evil. The vipers are still there. But God has given to us the antidote. Jesus Christ and Him crucified is the antidote. And, and we see how this event that took place in 1400 B.C., is so important in prefiguring what Christ would do 1,400 years later. 
as we turn, turn to the third chapter of John and read that, that powerful passage that we know so well, beginning at verse 14, John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and this is the story from Numbers 21, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The, the, the serpent in the wilderness did not judge the people. As the serpent was raised up, it was not the judge of the people. Judgment had already fallen. They were suffering from the judgment. It was their salvation. And as Christ was put on the cross and crucified, he becomes our salvation because we have already been judged and condemned without him. And if we don't look and live, we are condemned forever. The parallel here is just wondrous. It's no accident. And it's why God did it. It's not like John said, hmm, what can I think about in the Old Testament? It might be similar to what happened to Jesus here. <laughs> not quite. God specifically commanded that Moses do this as a prefiguring of what Christ would do. It's all part of God's great plan that, that you follow from Genesis through Revelation in, in perfect harmony. You and I remain in an evil world. And you and I are subject to the assault of the evil one every day. The venom of sin affects us. And we bear scars in our bodies of sin. But we do not perish. The venom does not kill us because we have looked to Christ for salvation. We have looked and live as they did. And the fruit of our faith is so powerfully described to us by Paul in that uh, well-known passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I mean, the people who looked at the serpent did not die of the venom. Oh, they felt the fire and the burn and they may have been sick, but if they looked, they were healed, they were saved, they were delivered. You and I, as we look to Christ, as the one lifted up in our wilderness, and, and the venom is, is in our veins, we look to him and we are delivered. And what is that delivery? But, verse 54, 1 Corinthians 15, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? As the serpent struck the men and women in the wilderness. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. They would look, they would live, 
They would go on and their, their efforts would not be in vain. They will conquer Gilead. They will conquer Canaan. God will give them the promised land. It, it's a picture of, of our walk with Christ. And we look at Christ lifted up on the cross and, and the venom has no power over us. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death is not a threat to us. It's simply a passage. It's a passage from this miserable life into the wonderful life of the promised land. And so Paul understood this as John understood it and, and as Moses didn't understand everything, of course, that John and Paul understood through the process of progressive revelation, but, but he did as God commanded him to do, and he raised up the serpent in the wilderness, and those who looked lived. Look and live, my brother live, we sing. We don't sing that much so much anymore, right? We sing some other things. But as far as the bronze serpent was concerned, it was simply an object to facilitate faith. There was absolutely nothing in that serpent, in its form, in its content, in the material of which it was made, or where it was placed, or anything else. It had no magical healing power. However, to look at the bronze serpent was an act of obedience which in turn demonstrated faith in the one who commanded the obedience. What does it say back in that 58th verse of 1 Corinthians 15? You don't have to turn there. It says, because we have victory over death and over this sting, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. He didn't save us just to have a party. He saved us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the love of the Lord. That's what we're here to do. That's why we sign this paper for, to help Austin and Judy. Because we're, we're abounding in love. That, that's why we pray for the ones that are, are ill, the ones who have loved ones who don't know the Lord. That's why we do what we do, hopefully, in the Lord. is because we have looked and we live. There are two important points, I think, relative to this that we need to note. Those who looked at the bronze serpent and lived needed faith only as the grain of a mustard seed. And you can generate that much faith by just rolling over on your side and looking in that direction, you know, as sick as you may be. It took some faith, but not much. And if one's about to die, certainly you can generate that much faith if it offers the hope of life. A second important point, no works were involved. No works were involved. They could do nothing to earn their deliverance. They, God didn't say, crawl up Mount Hor on your knees. I want to see the blood of your knees on the trail. God didn't say, repeat some prayer 100 times and then I might listen to you. No, God didn't say that. Their deliverance was purely an act of sovereign grace on the part of the Almighty. And so is our salvation. People are going to try to tell you everything else about this. You know, if you belong to this group or that group or the other group, they're going to tell you, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. Um, if you don't do this, you can't be saved. Salvation comes by faith in the sovereign act of a gracious God. Looking and living, how hard can that be? 
I think if someone was even blind, if they looked in that direction, God would have honored the faith because God looks in the heart and not whether they actually could focus in on this bronze serpent. And did, did he carry the bronze serpent through the camp so that those that were behind tents and everything else could look? I don't know. But God and Moses made it available so that none needed to have died. Those who died after the bronze serpent was set up died because they refused to believe. They refused to believe. Can you, you know, it's hard for us who are believers to imagine this. You can't even turn a little bit to look because of the hardness of your heart. How many are brought to the foot of the cross and say, I will not believe? Humble ourselves before God. To humble ourselves before God is absolutely critical. Not only at the moment of salvation, but throughout our lives. I think one of the greatest downfallings of the church today is that some people begin to have some success in the ministry and it goes to their heads and they become arrogant and they become uh, like they're necessary to God to accomplish this thing. And God is forced to allow them to, well, as the scripture tells us, pride cometh before a fall. And it's tragic when it happens. Humbling ourselves before God is absolutely essential. Anyone who refuses to humble himself and simply to believe in the simple gospel damns himself. God doesn't do it. He's already damning himself because God has provided the way and he has refused. And that's why I don't believe anybody's going to stand before God and wave his finger in God, under God's nose saying, you didn't give me a chance. You just didn't understand me. They will know in their own hearts that they are condemned for their own folly, their own refusal to believe. Now, interestingly, in the midst of all of this, we discover that even something as good as the bronze serpent can be perverted for evil. Satan is very, very sly, as you well know. He is known as the deceiver, and he can deceive. Anybody who thinks he can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil in his own strength is an absolute fool that Satan has him well deceived. He is a deceiver, and we will be deceived except by the wisdom that God imparts to us through this book. This is where we learn the red flags. This is where we know what is true and what is false. The bronze serpent was preserved. Well, you, you know, the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was made, and in the Ark of the Covenant were put the Ten Commandments, you know, and Aaron's rod that budded, and these kinds of things were put there. But it doesn't say God said, you know, alongside it placed the bronze serpent, but somebody preserved it, and the bronze serpent, serpent will survive for seven hundred years. No, I don't know, you know, you know seven hundred years from now would put us back to, you know, the late 13th century, before I even discovered America. Let's, let's read a passage from 2 Kings. Love the Kings. 2 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. Now, in case that's confusing to you, let me remind you that following the death of Solomon, there, there was a single kingdom in Israel under David, under, under uh, Saul, 
David, and Solomon. But with the death of Solomon, the Israelite nation was divided into two separate kingdoms. A kingdom in the north that followed the succession of, of uh, Jeroboam and was known as Israel. And the kingdom in the south, which followed the succession of Rehoboam, son of Solomon, which was known as the kingdom of Judah. So there's a kingdom of Israel, a kingdom of Judah. So that's why there's a reference to two separate kings here. And you go through the kings and you find that it's, often it will tell you that in the third year, the eighth year, the twentieth year of this king, another king in the other kingdom comes to power. So Hoshea is ruling in Israel to the north, at Samaria probably, and Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, is king in Judah at Jerusalem. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it. And it was called Nehushtan, which means the bronze, the bronze. It had become a fetish. <laughs> Israel had, had kept this and preserved it, and they were burning incense to it as if it had some kind of magical power. Oh, sacred bronze servant, we, we burn this incense to you. Now, in their thinking was, this somehow was a manifestation of Yahweh. And this was how um, perversion kept creeping into Israel. Somehow, you know, the golden calf represented Yahweh. Somehow, the, the advent of these other gods was some manifestation of Yahweh. We live in a pluralistic society. We understand how that can be. In America today, if, if you want to believe just one little narrow way, you're some kind of a bigot. You're supposed to be able to believe all the ways and accept everybody. Like ancient Rome, I mean, it is so parallel today. Ancient Rome had this big pantheon, and all the gods were in there. As long as your god was in there, it was okay. Didn't have a god in there. Then you were religio illicita, but, you know, that, there weren't very many like that. That's the way it's becoming in uh, America today, it seems. Now, the, the bronze serpent was only a touchstone of faith. It was something they looked upon which expressed faith in God, not in that piece of bronze hanging off that stick. In the history of the church, similar things have happened repeatedly, as you probably know. Men and women have attached religious, spiritual, magical qualities to actions, to ceremonies, and to objects. Relics. I mean, the history of the church in the first thousand years is full of relics. Sacred relics, you know, the bone of some martyr, or the, you know, a splinter of the cross, whatever it is. And, and that makes a place famous and important and, you know, somehow generates God's response, holy water, you know. The, the communion elements, the mass, these kinds of things have literally become fetishes, fetishes. Things that people place faith in rather than in the sovereign God alone. Now Hezekiah knew that true revival could not come to Israel, to, to his people, Judah actually, uh, while the people were carrying out pagan practices. And not, not only does he destroy the bronze serpent, you'll notice he says he removes the high places, he broke down the sacred pillars, and cut down the Asherah. Uh, it was very common for the Israelites, the, the Jews, to, to accept the neighboring religions, which were primarily the worship of Baal, which was a fertility god, and of Asherah, which was a fertility goddess. 
and they always worshipped on tops of hills in sacred groves of trees, and they often erected a phallic symbol, uh, the sacred pillar, and, and that's what's being torn down here. Sometimes there were images of, of the god too. And they are being destroyed, they're being leveled, and the bronze serpent is destroyed because God will not tolerate any rival to true worship to Him. Anything that detracts from focus upon God must be removed before revival can come. We've already noted in a previous passage in Numbers that God will share worship with no thing and no one. Why? Because nothing and no one is worthy of worship except God alone. Even things that have been associated with carrying out the will of God are not to be worshipped, such as the bronze such as those sent down from God as the, those messengers and those who carry out his work. Let me just read a passage to you from the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he, the angel, said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the works of this book. Worship God. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, we read this. We read that, we are, that, that man was made a little lower than angels. Well, let, let's apply a little bit of logic here. If man is lower than angels, and angels are not to be worshipped, who in the right? Who in the world has a right to accept worship as a man or a woman? And to whom should we give any worship as a man or a woman? Absolutely no one. No matter what the role of the person might be. No matter how God may have used that person. I mean, if anybody should have been worshipped in the Old Testament, it would have been Moses. Who worked, I mean, who did God work through more than he worked through Moses? And yet Moses was not to be worshipped. Thus, it's logical to therefore derive from this that Mary, the mother of Jesus, should be honored, but not worshipped. The Pope or the Patriarch should be honored, maybe, but no one should ever bow to him. We bow to God alone. We worship God alone. And the same is true of objects. Do you know why we do not have the true cross of Jesus Christ? I mean, Nehushtan, I mean, this, this bronze servant was kept for 700 years. What in the world happened to the cross? We don't have it because God knew if we had it, we'd do the same thing. And the, history, the church has a history of this for 2,000 years. Can you imagine what it would be like? It's the same reason we don't have the crown of thorns. We don't have the seamless robe that Jesus wore. We don't have the chalice, silver or not. You know, we don't have the nails of the cross. We don't have any of this stuff. In fact, as you've heard the, the saying, if you go over to the Holy Land, they'll sell you enough nails of the cross and enough splinters of the cross to forest a hill and to build a battleship, you know? People have been going to pilgrimages to Holy Land for 1,500 years, and they've been bringing back relics. God has not allowed the preservation of any true relic which might become an object of worship and divert worship from God and God alone. Nothing in this universe other than God is worthy of our veneration, of our honor in the sense of divine honor, 
and our worship. Nothing is. And I have something to say relative to that that makes it very applicable to our daily lives, but I am afraid the time I'm going to have to back up and uh, get this thing going again next week and, and carry on into that because you and I are tempted to worship other things. It may not be a pope or a, or a holy relic, but you know, in our daily lives, because we worship whatever we give our most time and attention to. That which is the object of our, of our heart's desire is really what we worship. And we can be sidetracked, and it is oh so subtle. Satan doesn't walk right up in their face and say, you jerk, you know what? You're worshiping your boat. No. He says, you deserve this. You know, God is honored by this. And, you know, I'm not saying anything against boats, by the way. <laughs> you have to hear all I'm saying here to understand this. There's not a thing wrong with boats. I've, my father owned a boat. I love to water ski. All the rest of it. But um, I had to pick on something. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, it, it all fits together, and uh, we'll, we'll look at that next week.